going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. A chilly greetings and salutations, my friends. Happy Monday. Hope all is well with you and yours. And hopefully you're able to stay warm. And if you have to be going outside for any length of time, make sure you're bundling up. I always love this time of year because it's always that Calgarians are taking this weather with uh, in stride. Yeah, we're born here, raised here. Old man winter is basically, I've seen snow in every month of the year except July, and I'm sure it's happened. I just don't remember it. I've also combined in December, so nothing ever shocks me. And I always have the parka with the sandals in, not together. Because I know Patrick would not be impressed by that. But I know a lot of people wouldn't be impressed by it. But you always have to be prepared. This time of year, you could be in sandals one day and then be up to your waist in snow the next. Well, let's talk about, it was, uh, not a, it was a big story at the time. And it sort of quietly over the last couple of weeks has come back into light. As the federal court has approved EI sickness class action lawsuit with new mums, and one in particular from Calgary. Jen McRae will join us after 4 o'clock to dive into. She was kind of at the the lead of this. So we'll talk to Jen about what she went through, what this process has taught her, and what she plans on chatting with her kids about down the road as well when it comes to this whole... It's been, I think she said, six years that she's been going through this. So we'll chat with Jen about that. Uh, A little bit of politics talk today. Not a ton, a little bit, though. City Council talking again today. And one of the big topics actually came to us over the weekend with the Enoch House burning to the ground. And it begs that question that has been rife in my mind as someone who really, as I've said before, and I'll say again, I'm a big fan of grain elevators. I'm a big fan of ghost towns. And so our past is always something I've been fascinated in because how do you know where to go if you don't know where you've been is sort of one of those sayings. And as we continue to lose more and more of these historic buildings, how are we going to highlight our past is the question that I have. We're going to chat with uh, Councillor Evan Woolley after 5 o'clock about what he said in council today, which is sort of echoing what a lot of people have been saying after the fire from over the weekend. So we'll get that. We'll also dive into provincial politics for just a short little bit after 5 o'clock. I don't want to harp too much on the same point because I feel like a broken record sometimes. But there are some things that have happened over the weekend or that came to light between Friday and today that made me scratch my head. And I wanted to just get it all out there, get it into the clear. But we're going to get started talking kids. And it is kind of election talk-ish. Uh, playgrounds, why is it that they are not a part of a school's original construction plan? Why is it that parents still have to fundraise for something that I would have thought would have been a no-brainer? We're going to talk about that next. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. So full credit going out to Eva Ferguson over at the Calgary Herald for writing the story from, uh, actually it was updated earlier today. Uh, headline, schools still in need of playground funding after minister promised action months ago. It's going to be a common theme that you're probably going to hear out of the UCP, but it is still, this is something that I, it's always baffled me, is how is it possible that 
parents who are already having to fundraise to get their kids on the bus for fees and get the, the you know organizing uh, their own bus trips and they're you know doing all that kind of fundraising and oh yeah we're just gonna throw you know you've got to get your own uh, playground on your own school ground it makes zero sense to me it should be part of the plan from the onset I don't understand why. But it's back in the spotlight again, and so joining us now from uh, Save Our or from uh, a group, let me just uh, make sure I get support our students is what they're called. Barb Silva joining us now on the program. Barb, uh, thanks, thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Can you believe that we're still talking about it from this standpoint? Is hey, parents need to do the fundraising for their own playgrounds for their uh, kids' schools. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm surprised that we're still talking about it. Absolutely, but I, on some levels, I'm not surprised because it's like the toothpaste instead of the tube. We've been fundraising and paying for our own children's playground for so long that I think it's now just become part of the process. And parents are used to fundraising. Um, I wish it wasn't this way. It shouldn't be this way. Kids deserve a place to be active, and I'm disappointed that this government hasn't done more to meet the needs of. of children's physical necessities i'm amazed as well that it's not as if the the goalposts are moving by any stretch but it seems as though parents are being built not bilked but they're being uh almost burned out by how much fundraising they're having to do on top of having to fundraise for their own playgrounds well it's interesting i think you know we hear more and more from parents that parent councils um, main focus these days is with their parent association, association, which is the fundraising arm of parent council. And it dominates uh, the parental involvement at schools. It's about fundraising, whether it's bake sales, working casinos, uh, playground fundraising. And at the end of the day, every time parents uh, put money in, we are paying a user fee or a user tax, and we are continually absolving the government of their responsibility to provide an equitable and accessible and universal education to all kids. And it comes no surprise that communities in less affluent areas have the ability to raise less. And we're creating this, um, you know, this inequity across the system and it exists as much in Calgary as it does in Grand Prairie. The other challenge that I have with it is in a much more well-off area of a community there's going to be a quicker response to getting a playground, whereas, say, a lesser-off community is going to take a lot longer, and it's going to be a lot more painful in getting that process to completion. Absolutely. We we saw saw that with the um, school in Pine Ridge. They've been two years without a playground. This is a K-6 to community. That means either 5-year-olds to 10- or 11-year-olds who go out at recess and have nothing to play on. And the consequences of that are far-reaching. There are social consequences of that. Kids don't learn their own physical boundaries. They, uh, they don't make as many, you know, have the opportunity to interact with kids. And then they go back into the classroom, unable to have expended some of that energy that makes them more able to learn. And so communities like Pine Ridge have been without one for two years. And it's difficult for those communities to raise money. And even accessing the money means writing grants. And, you know, for some communities where English might be not, you know, uh, would be a second language, um, all of these things present barriers that kids shouldn't have to face. Mm -hmm. And beyond that is you've got these parents who are facing uh, the time and commitment and the fundraising efforts, and it's taking away from their own uh, relationships with their own kids. Absolutely. It's absolutely a full-time job sometimes uh, to go through the process and jump through their hoops of raising money for playgrounds. And it's not just playgrounds that families are raising money for, but they're raising money for for books, for library books, for carpets, uh, for technology in the classroom, for field trips. 
So you can see that kids in affluent communities have a totally different educational experience than kids in less um, affluent communities. And and that's a problem. That's not the purpose of public education. It was meant to close those gaps. It was meant to give all children a, a level playing field. And we are, if we're, if we're measuring education by how we treat our most marginalized citizens, we are failing at that. It's funny that way is that you'd think, especially in a K-6 school, is that should almost be a prerequisite to building it is putting in a playground because then, you've, as you mentioned, you've got uh, you have recess, so what are you going to do during that recess? And and I know in many communities, in new schools, they don't have anything. I mean, outside of, hey, we've got some balls that we fundraised for, and, you know, we, you can play tag. And I get it, the imagination is one thing, but at some point, you need to have some of those apparatuses in place. Absolutely, and there's something to be said for, you know, if we're going to talk about the financial aspect um, there's something to be said for involving a municipality in this expense because the community then has a place to gather and kids from the same community can play outside of school hours. It's not something that's restricted to the use of the school only. And we should also be asking for Children's Services and the Ministry of Health to be participating in this because it absolutely helps in both of those areas as well. So what we, what we prioritize can actually come to fruition, but we have to prioritize it first. Is that something that needs, maybe that has been ignored in this discussion, is the different levels, whether it's municipal government and the the provincial government, need to set up together and say, okay, here's the area plan for this school, here's where we're going to put the playground, and here's who's going to be funding what and make sure it happens? Is, is, does that, is that conversation happening, one, and two, does it need to happen on a more thorough uh, discussion points so that, hey, you've got a, let's say, a, a small ball diamond on that land or whatever the case may be to make sure that everybody ha- that has a stake is organized on that front. It's actually what we've been calling for for four years now uh, since we started is a review. What you're talking about really is the review of the funding model. How are we funding schools? How can we better fund them? Are, are there communities and children who are falling through the gaps? Absolutely. How do we close up those gaps? Part of the way we do that is by reviewing the funding model and saying, you know, um, we're going to take into account building systems that that serve their communities municipally and provincially that have the best interests of children's health and mental wellness at heart um, and then fund it accordingly. And that means we might have to the funding might have to be interministerial. And it might have to involve municipal government. It might have. It might mean we have access to schools that kids can ride their bikes to or walk to. So many schools don't have pathways to them. And so there are solutions to this, but it means all these other areas speaking to each other and, and really focusing on the funding model. Because as it stands, there are too many kids and communities falling through the gaps. You made mention of something that I didn't. I just put two and two together on because being a small town kid is, uh, and by small town I mean the only school in town was the K to six, and it became a community center after the school itself shut down. Is that something that's almost forgotten in in all of these discussions? Is that they are community gathering places or can be community gathering places? So that, for example, you know, you, in in my old school, you used to have weddings and funerals and uh, you know, Lions Club dinners and all kinds of stuff. And maybe that's not happening to the same degree in the bigger cities. It isn't happening. It's something again that we advocate for: is schools as community hubs. Why are we not involving? 
all levels of government, including the municipalities and community associations, to create what we call the kitchen of the party. You know, everyone always, no matter what you do, people end up in the kitchen of your party. Mm -hmm. And that's what the school should be. It should be bringing in seniors bingo. It should have book club night. We should be able to, when we build them, build them with recreation centers or public libraries. Um, This not only helps bring communities together, it makes communities safer, and it also... Um, protect schools from boom and bust cycles where you see inner city schools dwindling in population because they're not just very one-dimensional. And it's something that's been, you know, implemented in other places uh, across North America and across the world that we have failed to capitalize on. And uh, it's something that serves the entire community from, you know, from from people without children to senior citizens to the, the kids that it's supposed to be educating. Certainly a discussion worth having as we head into the provincial election campaign. Barb, thanks so much for joining us and giving us some insight this afternoon. I really appreciate your time to talk about public education. Barb Silva is with Support Our Students as we talk about playgrounds and why, A, why we're still not seeing them on new school grounds. B, what do we need to do to get that ball rolling, figuratively and literally? This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. I'll read some of your texts next. Weighing in on the discussion surrounding playgrounds at schools as we head into the next provincial election, certainly something to be talking about because uh, the ball has moved a little bit under this NDP government, but still the storyline remains as some of these schools, they're not getting playgrounds. And as we continue to have the discussion about childhood obesity, as we continue the discussion about uh, funding for our schools, as we continue the uh, discussion around, oh, the kids, they don't do anything but stay in front of their computers all day. Yeah, because they don't have any options out there other than if you give them a stick and go outside. Now, that being said, there is some validation to having some imagination and sending kids out there with a stick and saying, hey, make your own game. That's all well and good. That being said, you would like to have options, wouldn't you? There is a question that does come out of this, and I've always wondered is, is there a legality issue to this? Are, is the Alberta government or has the Alberta government decided to throw it on fundraisers? Because if the government does it and let's say somebody breaks a knee, who's liable for it? Because in today's day and age, we're suing them for everything. I don't know. This is... A few random thoughts that come to my head as we have this discussion. Let's go quickly to the phone lines and say hi to Rob. Rob, what's on your mind on this topic? Oh, hi, Joe. Um, yeah, a couple things. First of all, I have no idea why it costs two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand dollars to build a place. But, yeah, uh, that one baffles me a little bit too. Yeah, I was telling your screener. You know, I grew up uh, when I was a kid. I mean, we had a set of swings, a slide, and I think a set of monkey bars. Yeah, so, I wonder if it has something to do with legality part too. Well, that's the other thing. No, that was the second part is uh, for, for sure. I know, uh, like I said, unfortunately, we're a little bit uh, too happy. So mm-hmm. um, second thing is I tried to uh, put on some seminars at the schools. Right. And I think it'd be a great idea. I'd just as soon put it on at a local school than have to rent a hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, but the logistics of it, you got to have a caretaker there. you got to have staff there. You know, there's a lot of a lot of paperwork you got to go through to, right. to have anything outside of school hours. Mm-hmm. That's the unfortunate yeah. reality on that one, Rob. Yeah, I, yeah, I appreciate yeah, like that. I said, I'd, I'd be happy to you know pay a thousand bucks or something mm-hmm. and and have the profits go to the school for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. No, I appreciate that, Rob. Thanks so much for the call. I, I think that's the one thing that I again I go back to. You know, the small town kid thing is. 
back back in the day, the the school was also the community gathering place for the Lions Club or for the the. I think we had. Uh, scouts there and brownies there and all the community groups were there because it was the gathering spot. And yeah, you got community uh, centers and that kind of thing for a lot here in the big city. But should we not be building out our schools more for that so that they can become the hub for the community? I, I don't know. And, and and I think you're starting to see it sway that way. I mean, I was actually out in Strathmore a couple of weeks ago, and they just built on the east end of Strathmore, brand new high school, I believe, with a full, uh, basically a gym-sponsored uh, gymnasium with, uh, I think they're looking to build it out to be an academy and everything else. So there's, there's, a, there's some movement there. I think there's some understanding there, but it's clearly not happening in every single community. And maybe we need to rethink that to the point being made by Barb Silva with support our students is maybe we need to look at the funding, maybe to Rob's point, we need to look at why exactly we're spending 250 grand as an example for a playground. Are we thinking too big? I mean, we like our shiny objects, but man, oh man, imagine what you could do for two or $300,000 with a playground. Scalgary today on 770 CHQR. It's a story that flew under the radar over the last week or two, but the federal court has approved a multi-million dollar class action settlement that will see Ottawa pay EI sickness benefits to as many as 2,000 new parents who were seriously ill during parental leave but denied the additional money. One of the people who was involved in this, and right from the onset, was Calgary's Jennifer McRae. She, along with about 2,000 others, will receive about $4,000 apiece for what they uh, went through. This has been a, a bit of a process now, and joining us now to talk more about it is Jennifer McRae. Thanks so much for the time today. Thank you. Give me your reaction, first and foremost, to maybe finally getting that last little bit of closure uh, with the federal court's decision. Um, yeah, it was, it was very... Um it was long awaited. <laughs> um, like I, I was in federal court in December. I actually attended federal court in Toronto. And so we, we had kind of been waiting for the judge's decision, you know, for a number of weeks. So, you know, by the end of January, it was kind of a, you know, please tick tock with mm-hmm. this, you know, like, like, like we, we were just very, very um, long awaiting the ruling. Right. So, mm-hmm. How much yeah. of a challenge or how eye-opening maybe has it been being uh, front and center on this, but also sort of being or becoming maybe inadvertently uh, a bit of a voice for women in, in the eyes of the federal courts? I don't, I don't know if you would, if you could say that, maybe you can. Um, <laughs> I haven't thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely um, been educated a lot on how, you know, a class action proceeding can work. Um, you know, I'm, I'm privy to, you know, I'm, I'm the one in the class that was privy to everything, yeah. right? So there's, a, the, the, you know, yes, there are thousands of class members that will get their potential settlement, but I was the one that was privy to everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for over the years, I mean, it was a very draining ordeal, um, you know, quite, you know, quite painfully slow at times. Um, but there's just, there was lots of stuff that was happening behind closed doors that, you know, that, that, that you may, maybe not, might not realize. So yeah, you definitely get an education in, in, you know, aspects of the law and, you know, just aspects of the class action lawsuit. Like it's, 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 it's no easy, 
it's no easy feat. What do you think this means for expectant mothers, for women uh, going forward? is that um, we launched the class action in early 2012. Very shortly afterwards, in 2013, the the Harper government um, kind of closed the loophole for, uh, and they, they they made a change in the legis in the way the legislation was viewed and the way that EI looked at the the sickness benefits for a new mom on maternity or parental. So it's actually been since you know I think May of 2013 that any mom that would were to be that were that were to get sick on their maternity or their parental leave they would get this benefit Mm -hmm. so that's been kind of corrected and in place now for almost six years yeah i wonder if it just set that precedent in a sense yeah so i mean so 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 for that sense um you know we're very very um happy that 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 change and that correction was made in 2013, so that absolutely any new mom that gets sick and, and is on their maternity or their parental, they don't have to go through this battle like I did, mm-hmm. you know, like hundreds, thousands of women before me that had to go through this. So so we have to be very uh, appreciative of that, mm-hmm. um, you know, but also going forward, you know, it, it's more, the case more goes backward. Right. It goes back all the way to 2002. So it's, you know, it's a win for all of us members of the class that we're all denied the same thing over and over and over again, that it's just more that now we're getting, you know, these, these weeks of sickness that we should have gotten many, many, many years ago. Did it ever feel daunting? Did you ever feel like, okay, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. Um, yeah. The, the, the past couple of years were, were very draining. were very um, hard because, you know, things just didn't move as quickly as we, as we wanted them to. I mean, albeit, you know, there was um, a change in government and that is going to delay things no matter what you're going through, right? You know, like the, the, you know, the ministers have to set up their stuff. All these people have to get brought up to speed of what's going on, you know, and again, it was a thing when, you know, the election promise, you know, okay, we're going to, if we get elected, we will settle this immediately. What's your definition of immediately, right? Mm-hmm. So it was just that, you know, that, that in that sense, it took longer than we would have originally liked. Um, you know, yeah, like, you know, because there was long periods of time where it was like there was nothing happening on it. And and that was very, very frustrating because it was just, you know, as the years went by, <laughs> is this worth it? Mm-hmm. Is this really? And it, and again, it was just so frustrating. And, and yeah, I, I, I got beat down by it a lot of times. There was times where it was just, I, I don't. I don't want to do this anymore, but again, you, you know, you're in it. You know, you you have to finish it. You can't just quit something like this, right? So, um, yeah. Has there been a moment or have you had a moment over the last few days to go, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I haven't. It was, you know, but again, like I said, it's, you know, kind of been, we've been waiting on it for weeks since federal court and on when I attended in December 3rd, right? So it's... um. You know, absolutely. When the phone call came in from my lawyer, and then also talking to Lori Montsabraton at the Toronto Star, you know, where she just phoned me and went, "Jen, it's official. It's over. Congrats." You know, so um, I, the, probably the, the the biggest moment that I had was actually this morning when I received an email from Natalia Rugas. So she's the um, she's the original person that um, set the precedent back in 2011. Um, she was diagnosed with breast cancer after she'd had her son and same exact thing happened to her that happened to me with her denial. She 
you know, found Stephen Moreau, my lawyer, um, and, you know, they spent 18 months working on her appeal and eventually won it. So it was, so that was the precedent setting ruling. That was the Natalia Rugas ruling. And that, and she, that happened to her about a month before, um, you know, my denial. Um, and so I got this beautiful email from her this morning just saying, you know, congratulations. And so that was probably the moment that I had was just when it, when it came from her. Because that really, really meant a lot because she was the one that started it. You know, she just, you know, I, I just kind of, she passed the torch to me and I kept going with it. But that was probably the, the sweetest moment that I've had. What does it mean to you to finally have this chapter of your life, and it's been a long chapter, finally yeah. come to a close? Um, it, it, it means a lot. Um, it, it means that all the work that we've, that we put in, over the years, you know, you know, was not a waste. Um, you know, originally when we set out, you know, with the class action, it was, you know, I felt that after my diagnosis and my beating breast cancer that, you know, okay, why am I still here? Right. And there was a purpose in me being still here. And it was also to continue to fight for, you know, in this case, other people that couldn't necessarily, um, couldn't necessarily do it you know it, it kind of very much so came into my lap Jen will you be this class action plaintiff um you know so it is it was something that it you know when I started it it was just no young mother no young family should have to go through this yeah. <laughs> when they're dealing with a newborn and when they're dealing with a life-threatening disease or an illness that you know in my case I couldn't lift my son out of his crib I couldn't feed him I couldn't I couldn't hold him. I couldn't take care of him. And, you know, no woman, a parent should have to fight for this, right? So it was a matter of, you know, and, and everybody just can't, you know, if you're looking at 10 or 15 weeks of sick leave, you can't go hire a lawyer to fight this every single time, right? So, and again, in the beginning, it was about me fighting for those other women. And so looking back on it, I, I get to be very grateful that I, I stood my ground on it and that, you know, and that to know that it, it wasn't just about me. Mm. It was about all these other women, um, you know, and there's thousands of us um, that this has happened to. So, you know, I, I fought the fight for other people. I, I made a difference. And, and for that, I, I, you know, I get to, you know, that will, that will stay with me for the rest of my life. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and for shedding some light on what you've gone through over the last few years. Thank you, Joe. Pretty good words from Councillor Evan Woolley today surrounding the Enoch House uh, fire over the weekend. This was avoidable, and Calgarians expect better of us. And I'm penning right now uh, a blog for... 770CHQR.ca, which I agree because as a farm kid, I had this massive fascination with grain elevators. I, I always loved hopping in the three ton with my dad, driving into town, empty it out. When I was lucky, he'd let me push the button to let the grain out of the box. And it was always fun to put your hand underneath the grain as it was, go as it was being dumped into the elevator. And as I got older, those... Uh, those elevators became fewer and further between because the community couldn't support them or the companies didn't want them in towns anymore or they became more of a fire hazard than anything. And I really didn't realize what was happening until I became old enough to actually appreciate them. 
And a few years ago, I started doing road trips around the province to snap photos of those elevators. And then it led me onto ghost towns. And it led me onto some of these older facilities. And I worry that we're losing some of our historic value here. Joining us now to dive more into that is Councillor Evan Woolley. Councillor, thanks so much for the time this afternoon. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Am I off point here? Are we really missing out on preserving some of our heritage and really being able to, even beyond waxing nostalgic, but just being able to appreciate our past hundreds of years down the road? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I've... I've I've traveled a little bit around the world and you go to, you go to some cities and people live in houses that are 500 years old and you kind of go, wow, wow, that's, that's crazy. Um, we are a city that has a much shorter history, right? For us, mm-hmm. it's like 18, you know, 18, 1880 is about as old as it gets. Yeah. Um, and so with that, with that, with that relative short yet deep and rich history, uh, we don't have as many assets and, uh, they built a lot more in wood. And so, the assets that we do have, it's really important to me anyway and to, to I think, a significant part of the community that uh, that we protect those so that in 200 years or in 50 years or in 100 years, when we look back, we, 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 can, we, can, uh, we can reflect on that. What are we doing wrong here? Are we missing a step somewhere along the line? Does the city need to take more responsibility? Does the private sector need to take responsibility? I mean, where does the, where does the buck stop here? Yeah, yeah, you know, I've thought about that a lot, and we're an entrepreneurial city, and so we actually used to be called the Sandstone City, so I think mm-hmm. it was like somewhere somewhere around like the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a big fire that burnt down a bunch of the city, Yeah, and so they found all of these old sandstone quarries, built everything out of sandstone, and then in the 80s, we tore a bunch of it down, we're like, right, we're a, a hustle and grind city, and so part of it was in our blood just to keep building new, um, um, but, uh, but there is the pieces that we've lost lost is that we we had let we didn't put in place some of the financial tools right so in a lot of cities if you're going to fix up your property you get a rebate on your property taxes for a bit um other cities just put a lot more uh a lot more budget at them uh our problem is is we've left a lot of these old buildings and they're really expensive to fix up right and so i guess you know the the ongoing conversation we have is what is heritage building and what is is too much, or what is not? Uh, what is enough, or what is the value that Calgarians want to invest in, in that? And it's uh, it's not a perfect conversation. Yeah, and it's a tough situation because you're not going to make everybody happy at the end of the day. But it, the the decisions still need to be made. And so the question then becomes: Is where do we start the conversation, or has the conversation even started at a city hall level? Yeah. So I mean. Here's here's the, here's the stuff that I think we're, we 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 need to, we need to focus on. We need to focus on what we own. So the city of Calgary, so the citizens of Calgary, we own about I think it's around 25 um, historic buildings in the city. So when you think of old city hall as one of them, uh, we own uh, obviously like a few buildings in the Beltline. So those assets that we own, um, we need to take care of those. Right. Mm-hmm. The other the other um, the other thing we need to look at is there are some uh, there are some private sector uh, building owners and some homeowners. Some people, some of your listeners will live in, in a hundred-year-old house or whatever, and we need to allow them, if we think that heritage is important and people that own those buildings think it's important, there needs to be a deal basically struck mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in us basically mitigating their property taxes or different kind of tools uh, if they're going to make investments in those houses and we want those houses to stay. How can we make it affordable uh, for them, and what what is that? What is that? 
basically deal look like and we we have to get on figuring that out yeah and that's one of the things that I, as i've been sifting through text messages and that from my opening statements a couple of hours ago on the show was hey you know i we've got this building but we're being taxed up the you know what because of how you know how much it costs to to uh, heat the place or whatever the case may yeah. be so there there does need to be that uh, ability to uh maybe reduce some of the red tape for those who yep. want to take it on hey. Exactly. And you know, one of the cool things that Calgary actually does, so if you own, and we do it only in the downtown on the Beltline, but if you own like an old church mm-hmm. or an old building, you can, and, and you could, w- without that building there, you could build a 50-story uh, condo or office building, right? But we actually mm-hmm. let you sell that air rights, they're right. called air rights, above that building and, 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 and give them to someone else. And in return, Right, you will get that value right. uh, to reinvest back in the protection, and so that's actually worked really well. And over the last couple of years, uh, we've seen that work in, in a lot of places. Whether you're talking about an old church or an old schoolhouse or, or whatever that might be, mm-hmm. no, it's a conversation we're going to continue to have for sure, Councillor Woolley. I do appreciate the time, and I'll let you get back to your council meeting. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Councillor Evan Woolley, joining us on the uh, Enoch House burning down and. Uh, over the weekend, and it does reopen that conversation surrounding some of our heritage sites, not only in the city, but also outside the city, whether it was, uh, I believe it was called Stevens Hardware and Garage in Orion, Alberta, south uh, south of Medicine Hat. Old place, everybody loved it. It burned down. You know, what do we need to do to maintain some of these old facilities that uh, paint a picture of our, of our past? Because I, I think it's really important to be able to uh, look back in time and go, wow, look at what we've accomplished since then. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. My board operator, Steve, was just saying, that was one of the first songs you remember hearing? Yeah, as a kid, actually, that's one of the first songs I ever remember hearing. And it's funny, we were, talk- we were just talking about it, how it's amazing how a song can take you back to a certain place or time, or you remember the first time you heard a certain song. Like and, and for a lot of my professional radio career, a lot of it has been spent on the road, traveling between home and Lloyd Minster, Medicine Hat. And so I spend a lot of time listening to music. And so you ask me what, you know, if I hear a song, I'll instantly be taken back to a point on a road or what. It's it's crazy sometimes. Anyways, on with the politics. I've been trying to avoid it like the plague, but I could not avoid it given uh, a lot of the reaction. And Rob and I talked about it during the free for all on Friday was a couple of my tweets really gained a lot of traction surrounding uh, in particular. And actually, uh, the the UCP really liked one of them. They ended up using it on Facebook was my idea that, hey, this is this has got to stop this whole campaigning on the taxpayer dime. I mean, all these announcements being made and part of my rationale behind it that they needed to stop was the fact that when the NDP was in a position of opposition back in 2015, the NDP was screaming from the rooftops about how dare you campaign on the taxpayer doll. And then we got the whole idea that, hey, well, we're, we're going to be a government of change. We're going to do things differently. They're doing things the exact same. Which brings us to Friday and this whole video and in particular some words said by Jason Kenney. The NDP acclaimed uh, their star candidate to take on Peter Guthrie, uh, a 19-year-old, who, now don't take it for granted because they elected a lot of them last time, all right? 
All right, so there, there's two things. First off, right off the bat, somebody, when you listen to it, and I had to listen to it over and over and over again, because instantly somebody said, oh, he said a gay 19-year-old. And that, it got people fired up. And I listened to it, and I'll let you listen to it again. What do you hear when he says right before 19-year-old? The NDP acclaimed uh, their star candidate to take on Peter Guthrie, uh, a 19-year-old, uh, who... Now, don't take it for granted because they elected a lot of them last time, all right? He didn't. Straight up. He said, uh, A, he stuttered. There, It was a very obvious stutter. And even watching his mannerisms, it was, it was a stutter. So that being said, you can, you can do all, say all you want about the UCP and their stance on LGBTQ issues. 100%. You can, you can take them for task on, on what they say, that kind of thing. But the part that bothered me was the age aspect of it, and not just from the UCP standpoint, but also from the NDP standpoint. And it drove me up the wall over the weekend to the point that I, I had to say something about it. And here's the deal. UCP uh, supporters, stop vilifying young people in the political process. It's no wonder they don't want to get involved in it in the first place. Add on the fact that you're doing yourselves no favors in gaining younger voters down the line. So stop that. On the NDP side, stop vilifying older people in the political process. Over the weekend, oh, you know, old boys club again. Listen, this old boys club has some experience that you, the, the rookies of the process, could really use some of that experience here in the short term. Can we please... Stop vilifying our political opponents based off age or race or anything else. Stick to policy, please. Because otherwise, you're again, it goes back to that whole you're voting against something versus voting for something. And I really, really wish that we could start voting for something. Because as I also said over the weekend, it seems as though both of these two parties in particular are doing themselves a whole lot of no good because they seem uninterested in actually earning votes. And both of them feel entitled to votes based off of the missteps by their enemies. It's getting embarrassing already. This is Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. Thanks so much for listening to the Calgary Today podcast. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, and tune in. When you do, don't forget to write the show and leave a comment. Until next time, my friends.